Welcome to the Braemar Life Skills Academy podcast. The world is changing faster than ever, and the world of education is too. Advances in psychology, biology, and a whole range of other fields have opened up new lines of thought about the purpose of school and how it can best serve a new generation of students. Join me on the Braemar Life Skills Academy podcast every week to explore these new ideas. In last week's episode, I spoke with Maria Solikowski about her work with the Wild by Nature Permaculture Homestead. This week, I'll be speaking to Julie Tomé and Leslie McHugh about their work with the education programs at the Royal Ontario Museum. Welcome back, folks at home, to the Braemar Life Skills Academy podcast. My name is Mike Helsby, Director of Student Experience here at Braemar, and today, very, very happy to be joined by two educators from the Royal Ontario Museum. Uh, Julie Tomé is a science communicator and educator, the lead educator at the Royal Ontario Museum. She's got decades of experience working in museums and science centers, science communication, museum education, program development, and program delivery are all important focuses of Julie's work. Leslie McHugh is the lead Indigenous museum educator at the ROM. She is a proud member of Mississaugas of Curve Lake First Nation, currently living in Ajax. Leslie is a arts administrator, artist, performer, and educator who over the years has fought for Indigenous rights by breaking stereotypes and raising cultural awareness. Her work is driven by her past, passion to educate, and the motivation to empower others. I feel like we're going to have a great conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Julie and Leslie. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So we're going to jump into a lot of stuff about what it means to be a museum educator and how uh, educators and students alike might get the most out of their museum experiences. But first, we want to get to know each of you a bit as people. If you wouldn't mind, Julie, introduce introduce yourself to the folks at home and tell us kind of how did the, the passion for sciences and for museum education first arise in your life? And what was the process like of following that through to this career? And I'm going to kick it right over to Leslie after that with the same question. All right. Um, well, I was, I was always that kid uh, with uh, lots of questions and um, always wanting to share what I had learned. Um, I was also uh, really quiet. All of my report cards said, Julie is a quiet and conscientious student. Uh, she should participate more in class conversations. Um, like every single one. <laughs> it's kind of funny how <laughs> later in life, we, you can almost pick apart people's personalities based on the one of five stock comments that we all got on our report cards. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, I, we had um, a unit on astronomy in grade one, mm. and I thought it was fascinating how there were other planets out there. And we had another unit on astronomy in grade six, and that was when I was like, okay, going to study astronomy, uh, which is what I wound up doing. Um, so I went to York University for astronomy, and my, my original plan was, okay, uh, bachelor, master's, PhD, be a prof. Um, yes, straight line. That's how it works, right? It's not how it works. <laughs> um, while I was doing my undergrad, I got to know some grad students, got to see what grad work was like, got to think, I don't think I can do that. Um, and thinking about what I pictured uh, when thinking of myself as a prof, it wasn't so much the research side of thing, though I did get to experience some of that both through my classes and uh, working at the observatory at York University, which uh, if anyone out there is considering astronomy, York is the way to go. Uh, 
they're not paying me to say that. Um, <laughs> but as an undergrad, you actually have an opportunity to use the scopes to be staff at the observatory, which is unique. Mm. Um, so I did get a chance to see what astronomy research is like. Um, but it was the teaching aspect of it that was what was attractive to me. And so, well, okay, I don't have to be a university professor to teach. I can teach astronomy in high school. It's in the grade nine curriculum. Okay, so changed tracks, went to Teachers College in Ottawa. Um, didn't take long for me to realize that wasn't quite where I wanted to be either, uh, but finished that, that program anyways. Um, after that, I moved to Sudbury, um, and I did teach for a year there. Uh, and what got me through my last day of teaching was that a friend of mine had sent me a, a job ad for Science North. They mm -hmm. were looking for an astronomer. I was like, that's me. Um, and so I worked there for a few years, eventually came back south um, and have been at the ROM for 15 years now. Um, have also uh, done a stint at the Ontario Science Centre as well. Um, as much as I like geek out on you know, formal teaching methodology and that sort of thing. Really, it's the informal, free choice environment uh, that that I enjoy the most. Mm. Um, I don't have the pressure of dealing with people's parents, having to grade anyone. Um, I get all the fun part of the teaching without all the stuff that drives teachers crazy. Well, well I'm, I'm sure myself and the other educators who are listening will try to remain as unprejudiced towards you as possible, <laughs> even as we suffer through our, our lesson planning and assessments. Um, the, the one point I really want to highlight uh, there before we, we turn things over to you, Leslie, is we end up speaking to a lot of people who are whose careers are educational and then some um, on this podcast. And the point that comes up again and again, in which we really want to make sure that especially the young people listening out there pick up on, is that there's almost never a straight line between the passions identified earlier in life and the eventual career. It looks like there is, right? In retrospect, you see, oh, of course, uh, Julie was, uh, you know, she knew she was uh, interested in astronomy from a very early age and ended up being literally an astronomer, right? Um, which I don't imagine there are many job opportunities that just pop up and, and say astronomer on them. Not very many, no. But it, it's so important for, for the young people out there to, to realize that your journey was filled with uncertainty and, and a few uh, detours along the way, and, and that ending up here was not a um, cookie cutter or checkbox process, but was rather, it sounds like, one of, one of exploration and where doubt informed challenge, which informs growth. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that is something that uh, I try to make sure that when I uh, especially interact with uh, high school students, when we have co-op students, or even, you know, my daughter, who's 13 now, but she was six, and she was like, Mom, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And I was like, sweetie, you're six. <laughs> you don't have to know that for a long time. Um, there's always time to change your mind. Half the people in my program when I was in teacher's college were people who were starting their second or third career, right? There were those of us who were like, okay, just finished my bachelor's, going on to do a bachelor of education. The other half were people who were like, yeah, I've already had a career in whatever field. 
now I'm, I'm going to do this teaching thing. Um, and really, I would say the thing that might stop you is either fear um, or sadly finances. Yeah. Um, sometimes, you know, you do start a university program and, and you don't maybe have the finances to switch gears partway through. Um, but yeah, most people's paths are winding. Uh, we had a, a career event a few years ago at at uh, the Royal Ontario Museum, and one of the questions that the, the students asked was like, you know, when did you figure out what it, you wanted to do when you grew up? And I had purposely chosen people who had those winding paths, uh, because that is most people's experience. Mm -hmm. And you know, everyone was like, I'm not done becoming what I wanna be when I grow up. Yeah. That's, that's what we've been saying. Yeah. I'm not done growing up. I don't exactly. know. <laughs> yeah. um, Leslie, how does that all uh, jive with you? Is that similar to your path? Well, speaking about report cards, mine was totally opposite. <laughs> I was the bubbly one who wouldn't stop talking. Um, and I, I feel like that's likely most of my job now is is finding ways to, to share my personal lived experience. Mm. And so for me, um, I'm also a cultural dance performer um, and an arts-based facilitator. And... Um, I'm one of the only people in my family who dance um, and share our cultural stories. And I think that's important because um, in what is now known as Canada, there was a time when we weren't allowed to share our dances, mm -hmm. when we weren't allowed to share our culture. So I knew that that portion was always going to be a part of uh, my practice and what I do uh, in community and how I can share some of my gifts is by sharing more about our culture. Um, and so I've been a part of different dance performances and dance groups um, who have shared more about cultural uh, knowledge and finding ways to break stereotypes about our people and to make sure that I'm always proud of, of my culture and who I am because um, even my, my, my mom or my grandparents didn't have the opportunity mm -hmm. to share some of those things. So I try to share them wherever I can. Um, and for you know being at the ROM, I was asked to sit on the uh, inaugural Indigenous Advisory Circle. Um, and so I joined that circle um, about nine years ago and uh, continued to just find other ways to work at the museum. So I didn't have necessarily a linear path mm -hmm. to how I started uh, working at the ROM, but um, from there I continued to facilitate the ROM Youth Cabinet, which is um, something that happens normally every Friday night where youth come into the museum and experience it in a different way. Um, and I always tell the, the youth that they know what happens at the museum at night, that it comes alive <laughs> and we get to have some time and space there. So um, I just continued my path from there and uh, joined the Indigenous uh, Educator team and now I'm the lead Indigenous Museum Educator. So I've been there for about eight or nine years now in different capacities and um, I just knew that education is something that I always wanted to do and I find um, audience and, and folks that come into the museum, sometimes it's their first experience learning about Indigenous culture. Mm -hmm. There's lots of people who come to the museum internationally, so sometimes it's their their first touch point or their first chance to learn more. Well, I'd, I'd love for you to expand on that because, um, as you're likely aware, we are an international academy. Our, our student base of about 400 students is entirely from um, foreign countries. We represent about 25 uh, different countries right now. And so many of the listeners connected with those students or who've heard of us through those those different channels may be relatively unaware of the situation of Indigenous in Canada, especially Indigenous history in Canada. And so just as the people you've described may be coming to the museum and making their first contact with that cultural history, uh, many of our listeners will be sitting here wondering why 
uh, your people were not allowed to dance, for example, or why some of those cultural expressions have been repressed for, for, for so long and are now, um, with, with the help of people like yourself, um, experiencing the expression that they have deserved all this time. Mm-hmm. Can you just expand on that a little bit? For, I'm, I'm not asking yeah. you to, of course, it's a history that couldn't possibly be covered in this podcast for alone, sure. but please give the people at, at maybe overseas a little bit more of a sense of that. Yeah, it's definitely um, a tough uh, history and ongoing history, mm-hmm. living a legacy that's definitely happening here in what is now known as Canada. Um, so a lot of uh, Indigenous culture, ceremonies, practices, um, including dance, were forbidden. Um, and forbidden, not just forbidden, but people could lose their lives over practicing who they were inherently meant to be. Um, and so I think now um, we're in a time where the Indian Act is is still um, still running and still in formation and still holds a lot of policies that, uh, that infringe on our way of being. But um, I feel like we're in a time now where we can openly express who we are and be proud of who we are. And so... Um, yeah, I make sure that in whatever I do, if that's uh, teaching at the ROM or if that's performing in front of a theater, that I'm making sure that um, the audience sees that. And so if that's visitors to the museum or audience in the theater, that they see that that I'm proud and that it's mm-hmm. okay to share my culture and to embrace who we are, um, especially with international students coming here, that it's important that you don't lose that. Um, and you can lose that being in a big city. You can lose that, um, you know, I say that, you know, we spend a lot of our time walking on concrete in buses and cabs and Ubers that we don't spend a lot of time on the land and connecting with the land that we're living on. But that's important to connect with the land here. And also don't forget where you came from and mm-hmm. how can you incorporate who you are into into a place like Toronto? It's it's a lesson that, or at least an idea that we try to spread with, with all of our students who come here, bringing with them their cultural assumptions, their cultural expressions, and identities that are in the midst of being shaped. They're, they're teenagers, mm-hmm. um, and not, which isn't to say that I'm not still in the midst of shaping my identity, that we're not all constantly in that fluid process. Mm-hmm. But as you say, um, maybe even especially in a place like Toronto, where there are such a myriad of identities being expressed constantly and changing constantly, yours can get lost. Mm. Yours can be erased. Mm -hmm. Um, Yours can be marginalized or made to feel smaller or less than Mm -hmm. some of the other pronounced identities. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to be spending a a lot of time today talking about uh, the museum and and, and the thought processes that go into the exhibitions and and the um, programs that you run. But I don't want that point to get lost in the Mm. midst of this, that that a, a big part of your work with the museum is making decisions about how identities get expressed, how they get held up, how do we generate spaces that mm-hmm. that, that that raise awareness, um, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. and that that applies not just to the indigenous community, although of course, um, the emphasis there is is that the term well earned comes to mind. That's not the the right way to say that, but it, but is necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, so too are the identities that I think a lot of our students are bringing: students from Ukraine, students from. From, from Turkey, from Iran, from places mm-hmm. that where identities are being erased even now. And For so sure. I, I hope that those listening see this as as an exploration of a space that values all of those and and, and treasures the idea of, of that expression. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, Julie, Leslie, maybe we can get into that a little bit. Talk to us about what's going on at the, at the ROM right now, what an educator who's bringing a classroom in there might expect, um, how you would envision them taking advantage of this this incredible facility like it really I, I can't say enough 
what an extraordinary place the, the Royal Ontario Museum is. We were just there a few months ago with our students checking out the uh, the Kent Monkman exhibit, mm. and hopefully we'll talk a bit more about that. But what, what, what are you doing at the ROM right now? What's a day-to-day look like for you, and what are you hoping comes of that, comes of your work? Do you want to start or shall you I? start? Yeah. Okay. Um, we're actually in the process of reimagining our programs, mm. um, which was a process that was just starting to shape, take shape uh, when the world shut down in March of 2020. Um, in the past, our programs were very much here's the grade level, here's the strand, and it was very focused. Um, and that wound up meaning we had over 200 offerings. Um, it was a lot. Uh, it was too many. <laughs> um, so now our approach is a little bit broader. Uh, instead of each program being for one grade, it's for a, a larger uh, grade band. Mm. Uh, so, you know, one to three instead of just one, two, three, you know, mm-hmm. four to eight high school. Um, we're also taking a more interdisciplinary approach um, so that, you know, you're not coming for just a science lesson, just a history lesson. You're going to get uh, both together, which we were starting to do a little bit of before. Um, we have been working as a department to indigenize our practices for, for several years now. Um, so we're you know continuing to do that. Um, we're also looking at things through like, um, you know, there's different uh, words for it, but like global competencies or 21st century learning, um, those, those uh, transferable skills that are so important um, for students to take with them. Um, so for, for educators, out, for teachers out there who've, who've come, you know, before the pandemic with their classes, the experience now will be different from what uh, they've, they've experienced before. You're still going to have, you know, a great lesson with high caliber educators. You're still going to get hands-on time with objects. Um, but the approach is slightly different now. Uh, we've been doing a lot of experimenting this year uh, because we've kind of, you know, hit the ground running and have uh, classes, classes have finally come back mm-hmm. on site this year, which is, which is nice. Um, and uh, a lot of our educators are, are new to the team. And so we've had a lot of um, fresh perspectives, fresh ideas. Um, I find the team is working really collaboratively um, as well. We've, we've um, had a lot more time to, to work together and work on things um, as a team as opposed to working on things alone, mm-hmm. uh, which has been really nice as mm-hmm. well. So. Yeah, and maybe speaking from some of the Indigenous offerings that we have, um, if teachers were used to coming to see Indigenous perspectives, which would normally focus on the First Peoples Gallery, Mm -hmm. we've changed that program so that it looks at Indigenous perspectives throughout the ROM, so that we're looking at some of the connections um, and how we can integrate Indigenous knowledge throughout the museum and not just look at it from the First Peoples Gallery itself. Um, and also the new offering, uh, Indigenous Perspectives in Being Legendary, mm-hmm. which you mentioned you were, you were in that exhibition. And so that exhibition has been extended to April 16th. So I know, it's so good. It's so cool for us. We just had um, 70 new students join us for our third term last week. And right. so they missed out on the Kent Monkman exhibit last term. 
which we thought was going to be our only chance at it. Yes. And just doing the research for, for this episode, I was really, really pleased to see that we're going to be able to do it again. I know. It's really exciting. And we have three Indigenous museum educators who are hired specifically for mm-hmm. that exhibition. So you get to tour around the space with an Indigenous educator who has lived experience. Um, and even one of the, the folks that we've hired uh, is in one of the paintings as an example. So there's some really nice connections by by visiting that that program. Um Maybe the only other two that that maybe you wouldn't see necessarily if you go on the education or the learning uh, section of the ROM's website, but uh, the ROM Youth Cabinet is kicking up again. That's the one that happens in the evenings Mm. for students. And also Hack the ROM, which is a digital learning program that we have that mixes um, digital learning with Indigenous knowledges um, and finding a way to connect that to the collections at ROM. And so I think those are some new exciting offerings as well. It it sounds so dynamic. It sounds like... um like a real energy has been brought and that maybe COVID while it was an incredible challenge um, brought some good with it, with it as well in terms of the um, spur to change. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to give the, the folks at home a sense of what it would mean to integrate the, the different sections, the different learning that happens at a place like the ROM because understanding the scale of what you're working with is, is kind of daunting. Um, I'll just go through a little bit of the data about the Royal Ontario Museum. We're talking about a, a public gallery with 13 plus million artworks, artifacts, and uh, specimens from, as advertised, uh, every every period from the past four billion years. Yeah, um, not, no no not big, big deal. Yeah. yeah, not too long history. Uh, the largest collection of Chinese architectural artifacts outside of China. Galleries dedicated to Africa, the Americas, the Pacific, ancient Rome, Byzantium, Greece, the Bronze Age, uh, the aforementioned Daphne Cockwell Gallery of First Peoples Art and Culture, Dinosaurs, uh, the Dawn of Life series, um, dedicated to prehistoric birds. Uh, you've got a bat cave at, <laughs> at the Royal <laughs> the Ontario <ever> Museum. <laughs> um, you mentioned a few of the the, uh, the different education programs, the ROM Indigenous Advisory Council, which I believe you were on the first iteration of, yes. uh, the Indigenous Voices series, uh, um, episodic guest speakers and educators coming in to deliver different um, stories, lessons, etc. Um, Hack the ROM, you mentioned, which mm. provides digital literacy to Indigenous students aged was it grades four, four to ten? Four to I ten, think? yes. Um, and finally, the youth cabinet, mm-hmm. as you mentioned. And I've I've not even come close to mentioning all the things that, that happen at the ROM. And if you're planning on going there and seeing everything in one day, best of luck to you. But it's going to be an, <laughs> an exhausting day, and I might recommend trying a you know a weekend maybe mm-hmm. um, or more. That's an awful lot to integrate when you it's talk about lot. moving out of linearity and towards. Um, intersectionality towards towards seeing uh, indigenous history in all of those um, different areas mm. exciting but but enormously challenging can you talk about what would be the process from from conception to uh, to, to full delivery of a new exhibit a new gallery a new program what would that look like for you um, yeah let's go with a program mm-hmm. um, and this is a, a process that actually kind of grew organically out of working together uh, online during the pandemic um, and so we look at you know what is a topic that we think would be worthwhile to offer that um, that w- there would be a demand for mm. um, and then um, we decide what the learning goals are going to be for that lesson three or four right we have an hour um (laughs) we have an hour on site and we have 45 minutes 
um, if it's a virtual lesson, half an hour if it's for grade three and under. Some, Attention some, spans are short, I was right? going to say, some minutes of which must surely be spent with an age group like that, just getting them in their seats and, mm-hmm. and looking in the same yes. direction. Well, <laughs> if, it's, if it's a virtual lesson, at least that's not our responsibility. Right. But, but yes, absolutely, there is definitely a lot of classroom management um, mm-hmm. involved in that, in that hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, you know, there's also some curriculum links that we want to make sure to include. So, you know, what, what strands and grade levels and... and curriculum documents are um, going to be touched upon because that's all important to include you know in that website listing for when teachers come in and go yes I want to bring my class which is a good thing for me to go Mm. Um, and then we have our our brainstorming session we bring as much of the team together as possible and think about places in the galleries what we have in the teaching collections what stories we can tell stories end up being the most important thing right? mm-hmm. what what are um, the narratives that we can weave mm. um, and that kind of ends up being sort of like the baseline for folks to go off uh, individually and write their lesson plans um, and so my lesson will be different from Leslie's lesson because my background is different from Leslie's background the learning goals the learning points outcomes will be the same but the lesson might be completely different um which i think ends up being a strength mm-hmm. it sometimes is a little confusing for teachers who come back the next year and go that was completely different than what i had last year did i book this the right thing <laughs> um but uh yeah that's that's our general process mm-hmm. for you know start to finish we also have you know practice sessions uh, so we bring all the educators together and do our practice of our lesson and give feedback like oh that was really great hey I just learned about this thing you might want to include that um, I really love that that thing that you did can I can I also do that when I you know um, when I when I do my lesson um, and and second practice lesson if you want it and then and then you're off to the races mm-hmm. Leslie same same sort of question but could you also just talk a little bit about um what Julie mentioned there, mm. the importance of stories, turning um, the, the material, the artifacts of the ROM mm. and the, 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 the demands of, a, say, a, a course curriculum into a narrative, which, which can be maybe so much more accessible for, for a young person learning. Yeah, for sure. The, the stories uh, are definitely the heart of, of all the lessons that we do. And I think we had a re- really unique opportunity with Kent Monkman um, Studios and the Being Legendary exhibition. We got kind of a different experience than we normally would for some of our lessons. We got to work really closely with the studio um, and to speak with Kent to hear the inspiration behind each of the paintings and to hear what their thought process was in creating those 35 new works. Um, And so we got to work really closely with them to develop what that narrative was going to be for the exhibition. Um, And then weave in Kent's personal story into each of those works. Um, And so, yeah, thank you to Kent and to uh, Giselle Gordon who helped to write the narrative within that exhibition space. So we had a really unique opportunity to to have a, a talk with them, to read essays from some of the folks in the Shining Stars section. We got to read from Wilford Buck um, and Paulette Steves and mm. other folks who helped to contribute to that exhibition, which is totally unique than how we would approach any other lesson. Um, 
And so I think that's really important to have some of those background stories of some of the elders and knowledge keepers um, and community members who help to shape something like being legendary. I, I can only speak from my own experience and from what I observed of our students as they moved through that exhibit, but having that narrative almost beginning to end, that arc that you go through and then coming out to the, you, you said it was the shining stars mm-hmm. portion at the end, yeah. where you, you're brought out of a story that's taking place in some parts in a, a prehistory uh, or a prehistorical times. And, and then you're brought into the immediacy of people who carry the work forward and carry mm. the story forwards. Now, mm-hmm. it, it made it, for me, feel so much more real. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, c- I could go on and on. I'm, I'm hoping people get a chance, maybe even through the, the messaging in this podcast, to, to do a little research and look up some of Kent Monkman's work. I know he's also delivering um, a lecture series on March 22nd. That's right. I believe coming 26th, up. 26th, I believe. Okay. I, I it's coming up. We'll, we'll yes. give you the right links at the end. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so for those interested, please just check the episode description and you'll see everything there. But boy, the, the weaving of this, um, the oral history, the, the really creative aspects, uh, I, the, the one painting stands out in my mind with the, the, the young um, indigenous uh, girl talking to the miniature, uh, mm-hmm. indigenous, almost like the borrowers or mm-hmm. um, uh, if you've seen um, The Secret Life of Arietti, it reminded me of that. Um, and then in the background, the very recognizable RCMP mm. officer, um, I, I believe that in, in that story and then the paintings that follow indicating mm-hmm. um, a really, really brutal incident that took place, I believe it was in Saskatchewan, where was it 12 indigenous men were, were basically ripped from their homes and, mm-hmm. and, and hung in front of their... their um, their, tri- their family members, their tribe members. Mm-hmm. Um, and so moving, that, that weaving mm-hmm. um, has not left me in, in terms of the impact. And we were there three months ago or two months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I expect that many students have the same story. How do you sort of balance the demands on one hand of the, the classical sort of preservationist um, goal of a museum um, that we might imagine and the our, our sort of more recent emphasis as a culture on things like transparency about our histories, reconciliation between our various identities and our backgrounds. Um, There's such a a necessary emphasis on that, but are there conflicts between those two agendas and and how do you navigate that, that, that dynamic? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. There's, there's conflicts. And I, I think as educators, um, and as Indigenous folks working at the museum, we have an opportunity to rename and reframe how we look at things in a museum. Um, and, and sometimes that just starts with language. So if you look at the language on the labels or didactics walking through being legendary, the voice or narrative throughout that exhibition is wildly different than what you will see in the First Peoples Gallery. Mm-hmm. Um, so thinking about when you're walking through those spaces, whose voice are we hearing? And, and we're very lucky within being legendary to hear Miss Chief Eagle Testicle's voice. But walking through the First Peoples Gallery, whose voice and whose narrative um, is that within that space? Um, and thinking about, you know, whose voices are missing within that mm. space. Um, but going back to the language piece about renaming and reframing, even something as simple as instead of saying the word artifacts, um, we will say artistic and cultural belongings. Mm-hmm. So we think about some of the items within a museum as having life or having energy. So even something that simple um, can have um, can have wild effects on how we see museums today. Um, going through the First Peoples Gallery, just another example, is um, there's a dying race narrative, which goes back to some of the foundations of how the museum um, or how some museums look at 
um, something like Indigenous culture, but we are uh, a thriving and and you know living living culture, and so it's important that we find ways to to tackle that. And I think within the Indigenous um, team, having Indigenous folks talk about lived experiences and being in the space to share share their personal stories is one way that we can show that um, show that change. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as as a settler uh, in what is known as Canada, um, I feel a responsibility to help um, to to assist to do what I can to continue that work. It shouldn't all be the Indigenous educator team doing that work. Uh, we all start our lessons with the land acknowledgement and not just, you know, blah, 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 and that's it. Like, we all have personalized our land acknowledgements. We all situate ourselves uh, where we are, what it means, um, even, you know, with the little kindergartens who, like, first of all, what does the word acknowledge mean? You know, what does time immemorial mean? Um, and, and you know, we, we like to get students thinking about you know, what does it mean to be here? What are things that, because it's it, talking about heavy things like this, it can be easy to to feel hopeless. Like, what can I do? Especially as, as a student, right? Like, I'm just a kid. What can I do? Mm-hmm. Well, there, there are things you can do. You can't, you can't undo the past, you know? I, mm-hmm. I can't undo that I'm a descendant of one of the first farmers to come from France he probably displaced indigenous folks through his farming. That sucks. Um, I can't change his actions, but I am responsible for mine. Um, and and I, I can teach people about the words they use. I can teach people about different frames of mind, um, different ways of looking at people um, and, and at history. Um, and so I will point out things like those totem poles that everyone you know, looks at and that have been preserved, that's, that's counter to the cultural practices of totem poles. Like mm. when they, when they're done standing, when nature's forces make them fall, they're supposed to return to nature and decompose. Like they're not meant to be preserved. And yet here they are in the museum. There are these, um, these, these things that are, you know, opposites of what are supposed to happen. Um, mm-hmm. there, there are important practices that are supposed to happen with the, the artistic and cultural belongings, the ancestors that, that are in the gallery to, because they are seen as things that are imbued with life, mm-hmm. um, you know, be it smudging or other ways of taking care of them, um, that should be happening there. There's always going to be some tension between you know, the museum way of doing things and the cultural ways, um, especially when you're dealing with living dynamic cultures that these these things come from. Um, but I feel like there's a there's got to be a way to work collaboratively to come to some sort of consensus. Um, it doesn't have to be a butting of heads. Um, mm-hmm. But the museum side of it has to uh, let go a little bit yeah. of some of those, like, no, it must be done this way because mm-hmm. this is the way it's done. 
Yeah, and I think we're starting to see some of those changes. And, and Julie mentioned this before, you know, teachers who may have come last year, it's going to be different this time. And even within the galleries, like the galleries themselves aren't static. Things rotate and change. So, you know, things that you may have seen uh, visiting in, in previous years might be different this time. And we're starting to see more shifts of language. Like within the Being Legendary exhibition, you do see syllabics used. So uh, a Cree language writing system or you might see Anishinaabe Moen in, in the basement for our relations painting. Those are things that we didn't have before. Mm. So things are, are shifting and changing. It is a slow process, but um, we're, making, we're making small way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it sounds like in the midst of that progress, you're modeling the type of collaborations that I think, Julie, you were just alluding to, which are completely necessary, are mm. the only way that we're going to move past these what often feel like irreconcilable conflicts, irreconcilable differences. As you said, there are parts of our history, there are parts of my inheritance and, and all of our inheritance here in, in, in Toronto and in Canada that are unfair in a deep way, are unjust in a deep way, and there's nothing that, that I can do to, to, to fix that or change that. The, the inheritance that I've received from, from my family as settlers is unfair. Um, and, I, and I'm learning that more and more and even bits of knowledge like I, I didn't know what, what you were just describing as the, the intention of the totem pole and where it's meant to go. It's interesting mm -hmm. that um, we, we walk up the spiral staircase to the Kent Monkman Museum uh, uh, or exhibit around a, a massive totem pole mm -hmm. and many of our students are struck by it and mm -hmm. ask questions about it and um, I think of that as, as a great way to sort of set the table for what they're about to experience but there's a conflict there mm -hmm. in that that totem pole, as you say, shouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. um, tangentially, it also strikes me as, as somewhat, at least interesting, if not ironic, that we're in a moment in Toronto where there's a quite, quite a, a growing conflict over the removal of trees at um, Osgood Hall. Mm -hmm. We seem uh, perfectly willing to, to displace and uh, fell 200-year-old trees here, but we're preserving totem poles that, that should have been allowed to decompose and return to the earth mm -hmm. um, in some cases decades and, and even centuries ago mm -hmm. um, given this level of complexity and, and given the I, th I think all too human response to complexity which is often a turning away or a numbing or mm -hmm. a distracting right we see that in all kinds of different fields in our lives today what can a, an educator do maybe what can parents do or even young people to maximize their openness to, to put themselves in a position um, where they can best receive some of this new knowledge, which may well come in direct conflict with their assumptions and some of their learning, um, which has been done beforehand. Mm -hmm. I'd say the most important thing to remember is that it's not an attack on you. It's not a personal, mm. like, you've done a thing wrong, or you're, you know, your grandparents did a thing wrong. Like maybe your grandparents did do a thing wrong, but it's not its not a personal attack. Um, every, nobody's perfect, right? And it's, I think another part of it is as Canadians, we are, we're raised to be, you know, so proud of being Canadian and, you know, we're so gentle and friendly and kind and we couldn't possibly do anything wrong. Um, so much of what we learn uh, in in our history, like we leave out the uncomfortable bits, and that, that's changing, right? Um, we certainly, when I was in school, did like 
residential what? Like, I did not learn about residential schools till I was an adult. Um, But my children certainly know what residential schools are. Um, so that's, that's changing, but you know, I'm sure if you went out and asked a hundred people on the street, they would say, yeah, there was never slavery in Canada. And like, uh, yeah, yeah, there was. Mm. Um, so it's a little bit of letting go of that, like excess pride. Every, every country has ugliness in its history. It's, it's part of being human. Um, and if you you know, cover your ears and shut your eyes and go la 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 la. Um, you can't move forward and and in a good way, mm-hmm. as one of our former colleagues mm-hmm. would put it. Um, so yeah, just just it's not it's not about it's not about you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's about learning. It's about being informed, and and it's about moving forward and and making your actions moving forward the best actions that they can be. Mm-hmm. Same sort of question. How, yeah. how can young people or put themselves <clears throat> in position to, or how can their educators and their, their parents help them to be in a position to receive this, this learning without antipathy, with, without a feeling of, of being attacked? Yeah, I think um, just continue your learning and know that learning is not static, that it's fluid. Something that you learn today um, might change in five years. You know, it might change next week. And and to not hold on to those learnings as, as something concrete because um, an example is the First Peoples Gallery. You know, there was Indigenous uh, consultation for that space in 2005, but what we know in 2005 is wildly different than what we know today. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just to be flexible and to be fluid with your learning and... and um, yeah, continue to search out sources and to make relations with Indigenous, speaking from an Indigenous perspective, um, make relations with Indigenous peoples and communities. There's lots of folks who will come to the museum and, and that might be one of their only points of learning about Indigenous knowledge outside of school. Um, and so I, I always ask, you know, what type of relations do you have with Indigenous communities or, you know, what treaty land are you living on? And and people don't know. And, and that's okay. But it's important that we always strive to, to continue learning and to build those relationships um, so that we can be good caretakers of this land that we're all trying to live on together. Um, and that, you know, um, that, that we find those learnings from other folks. And, you know, sometimes Grandma Google is also really good. Mm-hmm. Um, but make sure that we're, you know, finding different sources and finding ways that we can um, build relations. I think that's the most important thing. I'm going to ask a, a, maybe a self-serving question mm. here. Just, um, I think it was about two years ago, I read uh, John Ralston Saul's A Fair Country. I don't know if either of you are familiar with, with the work. Um, John Ralston Saul, very well-known uh, Canadian scholar, um, basically makes the argument in A Fair Country that Canada has, from Confederation, been a lowercase Métis nation, that we are not the European nation that perhaps other scholars and other historians would have previously claimed, the, the sort of monolithic story of, of course, the first people who came here were the French and English settlers and their fur trade was the first enterprise, etc. He would dispel that notion and say that, I guess his claim broadly would be that um, the relative or comparative lack of political violence and political strife that's occurred in the last 250 years of Canada's history is indicative of 
an attitude and a learning that was adapted and in some ways even genetically adapted through um, a process of intermarriage and necessary engagement with indigenous communities right from the, the beginning of the settlers um, because they were not going to survive without some, some of that knowledge and some of that engagement. And so it's, it's a large argument about, I guess, uh, the different place of Canada in comparison with perhaps other uh, colonial nations and colonial projects. I've wondered about that since. Uh, my reading in this area is deeply incomplete. Um, I'm, I was flattered by the notion, and I think much the way that, that you were indicating, many Canadians are often flattered by a notion of ourselves as being somehow morally superior, more attuned to multiculturalism and diversity and the strengths therein. What would you say to someone who might have picked up that book or seen other, other um, arguments for Canada being certainly not perfect, but um, having perhaps um, inherited a more conversational, a more shared bowl um, attitude towards, um, I guess, public interaction and, and just uh, national development in totality. Hmm. <laughs> that's, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> I counter it with pick up 21 things you didn't know about the Indian Act. Totally. Okay. Yeah, um, it, it's a tough one. Canada has a lot of ongoing um, epidemics uh, and and passed on. You talk about uh, things being passed on, perhaps even genetically, but um, we have uh, an ongoing epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and two-spirited uh, folks um, across this nation. We have uh, more children in uh, foster care than we did at the height of residential school. Like some of these ongoing issues um, and attitudes um, I think have been passed down from generation and generation, and that's why we continue to see uh, some of these inequities uh, Indigenous people are facing. I think some of those attitudes are definitely passed on from generation mm. to generation, and um, I don't know how to answer the rest of it, but... I, I feel like if it was truly like a, a collaborative, mm. uh, you know, let's work together let's do what's mutually beneficial it wouldn't look like what it looks like this is true right (laughs) residential schools wouldn't have been a thing the indian act wouldn't have been a thing Mm -hmm. the potlatch ban wouldn't have been a thing Mm -hmm. like like there was a state-sponsored attempt to annihilate indigenous people Mm. right like and i don't think you can say that like yeah, they, inter- they we're, intermixed. We're, they intermixed. Everything was great. Like just because there was no like all-out warfare. Yeah. 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 That w- that was my instinct. That this is uh, perhaps a, a more romanticized view than, than uh, John Ralston Saul would like to admit. Um, in Canada, we're, we're proud of ourselves for a streak of non-violence and, and for a preference for diplomacy and bureaucracy over aggression. Um, I, I think there is a sense in, in Canada that we are not going to, or that, that we we don't need to aim to be the most powerful country in the world in the way that perhaps other countries may feel it is their destiny to become. There isn't necessarily the imperial impulse in Canada. I didn't grow up with a notion that, oh, if we can just take over Alaska, then, then our nation will be complete. And I don't know to what extent those general preferences towards peaceability 
toward, towards um, live and let live, which are, again, as we've mentioned and, and you've laid clear, certainly not consistent across our nation and, and certainly aren't consistent across the various demographics represented here. But um, I say all of this by, by way of, um, I guess, a, an apology for, for um, Mr. Saul's work, and I certainly don't want to say that I've captured his argument perfectly, but um, mm. being someone who grew, who grew up here and has spent the vast majority of, of my life here sort of unconsciously through osmosis adopting a lot of the cultural attitudes that swirl around me, um, I did want to understand better, is, is there a difference um, in our, our sort of globalist and even in our diplomatic approaches to one another that we've perhaps inherited in part from the early interactions with um, our indigenous cultures? Uh, that may be a conversation that, that we can come back to at a later time and spend the hours that, that it deserves on. I wanted to ask, um, Braemar is, is located in, in a pretty prime location in terms of the, the facilities that we have around us. Uh, we can take a 10-minute walk and go to the ROM or go to the AGO and, and experience these things. Um, we still only take advantage of that kind of on, I guess, what would be a, the, the regular field trip um, uh, frequency. We're there, we're at the ROM maybe once every two or three months. We're, we're you know, at the AGO or at the Conservatory of Music or um, hopefully somewhere else that's representing uh, culture about every month. But when you compare what is available in our school building with what is available at the ROM, if an alien were to come down and say, like, where should these students be five days a week? it wouldn't be hard to see them arguing that they should be over, over at the ROM, right? There's, there's just so much more to engage with there. In your perfect world, as, as museum educators, what place would public spaces like this have in the regular operation of a school and in the regular uh, daily lives of students? You want to take it first? Sure. Um, I think it would be one touchstone for, for their continued learning. Um, in the uh, rotunda at the museum, there's a beautiful mosaic of a thousand pieces. I think that's like a good way to look at it, that it's just one small piece of, of their learning. And I know that um, the ROM is one of what is now known as Canada's largest museums. Um, but I think that your learning should continue outside of the museum's walls and finding ways to, if, if you're learning about Indigenous folks or you're learning about being legendary or Kent Monkman for the first time, that you continue those learnings outside of the museum. Find ways to, to see Kent at a lecture somewhere else or go see his work somewhere or go to his private studio as an example. Just find ways to make sure that you're, you're always connecting um, with those learnings and taking those learnings with you. You spoke about um, seeing being legendary a few months ago and it's still sticking with you. Mm -hmm. So now what? Um, so I always say that, you know, we need to find ways to, to take action and to learn more outside of the museum. Even speaking about the land acknowledgement. Um, so we've all heard them. So what learning then are you going to do from that? What actions are you going to take then from that? Um, sometimes folks are coming and they're learning about residential schools for the first time. And then I always say, now what? Um, so what are, you, what are you going to do about that now? Um, so finding ways to, to yes, look to the ROM and other cultural institutions for knowledge and guidance, but then continue your learning beyond that. Kind of the, the diving board, the diving board into the, the deep end of the pool. Yeah, for sure. And, um, and, and to take accountability for some of that learning and to check in with other folks, because um, I think that's how those ripples start. Um, 
you need to do the learning yourself. Then you share with a, a classmate of yours, you share with another teacher, you share with your community and those ripples get larger. Um, but we need to take that first step for sure. Mm. Yeah, I agree hundred mm. percent. Um, I don't think learning can happen in any one single place only. Um, you know, we often think about, you know, how, how best to, to approach, you know, indigenous style learning at the realm. And it's hard because indigenous learning is land-based. Well, <laughs> we're in a building, yeah. right? So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, you really, it, it's a great starting point. It's a great place to come. And there's definitely a lot of things to see and a lot of things to learn about and a lot of things to think about in particular. Um, and, uh, I think one of the important things is to not look at it as like, all right, it's a day off school. Mm-hmm. We're going to go do this lesson. And then that's it. Mm-hmm. No connection to what we're doing before and no connection to what we're doing after. Mm-hmm. It's got to be integrated to, to what you're doing um, to enrich it. Right. Um, but it's definitely, you know, a piece of the puzzle, mm-hmm. not, not the whole thing mm-hmm. um, as, as any any place. Yeah. 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 I couldn't agree more. Um, that idea of integration of, mm. of uh, making sure that there aren't really any starts and stops or any walls around. We don't, we don't silo, um, parts of learning. And that has been, I think the, the public education system's legacy up until this point, it's been very specialized, very linear, very, very, um, categorized. I, I learned English and then I walked to the other room, which was the math room. And I did that for 75 minutes, and then there was no connection between, mm-hmm. between those two. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and really no appreciation for m- the transition of, of my body and my personal self between one space and another or mm-hmm. one subject and another. And, I mean, I think any educator who's led a field trip can so sympathize with what you just described, the, that sense that a lot of students have that this is my vacation from, yeah. from class and not perhaps the, the most engaged learning that I'm going to be, be doing on this subject. Um, Leslie, you mentioned that this needs to be a starting point and an impetus towards more exploration and deeper mm-hmm. learning and, and responsibility, taking mm-hmm. responsibility. Um, I often say to my students that um, an education, the, the great value of an education is that it makes the world personal to you. And so when a student goes through the ROM and has that sensation that some of these subjects, some of, these, some of this history has become personal to them, in this city of Toronto and perhaps uh, for those living elsewhere using Grandma Google or, or using <laughs> what they have around them, can you provide a f- just a few examples, a, f- a few you know inspirations for, for the young people listening and saying, I want to take responsibility, I, I want to do more? Where, where can they go in, in our city or, or where can they go online to, to begin that journey? Yeah, well, you talked about where the school is located. Um, and, and previously I spoke about understanding what treaty land that we're on. Um, the school here is on the Dish With One Spoon territory. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a really good spot to, to start your learning and to, to understand what that treaty means and represents. Um, it was a pre-colonial agreement between the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe people to share and care for this land together. But it's been since amended to include everybody listening to this podcast. So we all have a responsibility for future generations to make sure that this land is in the same way that we had it and that we got to enjoy it and that that dish is always full. And um, that includes the waters as well. So learning more um, about where we are, 
um, but also connect with, um, speaking from the Indigenous side, um, with the community here. There's lots of um, socials at the Native Canadian Centre, for example, which is a hop, skip and jump away from the school at Spadina and Bloor. Um, there's lots of powwows at every college and university so that you can see um, Indigenous uh, artisans, dancers, speakers, elders, knowledge keepers. There's lots of ways to interact. We just need to to dig a little bit deeper and see what's out there. And, and um, you know, at the end of our day when we're tired, realize that there's still so much more that we can do and that we can see um, if, if we just take the time to, to participate. So uh, getting involved, I think, is the most important thing and starting to create those relationships with community members that, you know, might last a lifetime. But you need to take that first step to to make those relations happen. Um, I'm thinking about folks coming in and maybe going to the hands-on biodiversity gallery mm. and taking a look at the mixed wood forest and, you know, oh, look, I see a bird up there and a porcupine. Um, maybe going through the bat caves, the ever popular bat caves, seeing some bats. And those are all, you know, fun, either models or stuffed specimens. Uh, you know, but you can walk out into your neighborhood and find a tree. You can find some birds. You can find all the things around you. You don't, you don't have to go far. We're lucky to live in a city that has lots of green space and start to get to know the things that are around you. Um, there's a great app called Seek, S-E-E-K, uh, that will help you identify things. When we know the names of things, we tend to care about them yeah. a little bit more because uh, we make that personal connection with them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't get to see a lot of variety at my backyard bird feeder, but I love my backyard <laughs> bird feeder. Um, you know it's all it's all chickadees and uh european starlings but you know they're my chickadees um (laughs) and the the odd uh red-winged blackbird which Mm -hmm. are leslie's favorite leslie's Mm -hmm. favorites Mm -hmm. Um, aggressive birds if i'm not mistaken they they are yeah (laughs) they can be take action they can be yeah um uh you might have come for a planetarium lesson we haven't uh brought that programming back online but um you know, you might have learned about the night sky. It's, it's out there. Um, it's a little light polluted in Toronto, but the moon is visible right now. There's a comet that you can see in the evening and morning sky. Um, it's, it's out there. Mm-hmm. You don't have to necessarily just depend on the, the replicas or the stuffed versions that we have. You can go out and find the real thing. Mm-hmm. I, I so appreciate the the range of options that you've just expressed, and uh, something I really wanted to highlight was this notion of the the shared bowl or the dish with one spoon. Mm-hmm. That whether you are engaging with something like the the Native Canadian Center, or maybe you're reading Twenty One Things You Didn't Know About the Indian Act, mm-hmm. uh, you've mentioned the the hands on biodiversity program, the 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 York uh, Observatory, uh, the Seek app. These are all ways that we can engage further. I think a lot of people might look at some of them and say. What's that got to do with truth and reconciliation? Mm-hmm. Or what's that got to do with, um, you know, uh, cultural identities? I love the idea that when you engage with any of the ROM offerings, be they archaeological, biological, anthropological, historical, that education is always in the service of truth and reconciliation, always in the service of um, refining a, a, an identity that that is going to be 
empathetic and, and, and cooperative. If you learn how to take care of the birds in your backyard, you are also uh, learning how to be anti-racist, more feminist, etc. Um, if you make the, the, the stars personal to you and, and become an educator in your own right uh, about things like light pollution and about making sure that we are more in keeping with, say, our circadian rhythms dictated by those movements, you are being supportive of, of marginalized communities, right? That all of these acts are integrated in a deep way. They're all swirling in the same bowl. Mm. Um, I, I, I couldn't say any more about that, and you've said it better than I could, but it's such a, an encouragement for anyone who's doing learning and may feel that bit of sense of FOMO, like, oh man, I'm only learning about this subject. Maybe I need to radically shift my direction to make sure that I'm encompassing all of these things. That can be quite overwhelming. Mm. Knowing that in, in pursuit of, of truth and knowledge, you are contributing positively in those other areas, even though you may not be directly involved in them, can be so empowering and, and can motivate better and truer learning in those areas. Um, in hopes of encouraging more of that, um, I'm wondering if you might be willing to give us a little sneak peek about the, the work that's going on in the realm right now and maybe what's coming up next so that we can get some, some listeners about ex excited about going there in the near future. Sure. Well, we have a new exhibition opening up soon. It's not very peaceful. T-Rex. Okay. <laughs> okay, cool. The ultimate predator. Wow. <laughs> I mean, uh, among other things, one of the most impressive and memorable from my childhood going to the wrong was seeing the big, the, the dinosaur skeletons, those excavated. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, again, um, it makes the, that, that faraway period so real. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I know, yeah. I know my nephews feel exactly the same when we brought them. They're, they're <laughs> eight and six uh, when we brought them a few years ago, and they felt, yeah, stunned. Yeah, that one's coming, and the new um, session for Hack the ROM is opening up, so uh, we can take as many teachers as there is interest. Um, so if anyone's interested in that program, you can head to the Royal Ontario Museum's website and look for Hack the ROM. Um, there's an application form there for teachers to, to submit. We do prioritize classes that have Indigenous students, but all are welcome to apply, and we see how, how things land there. Um, Youth Cabinet is also starting up within the next couple of months if any students are interested or or need uh, volunteer hours or they want to come hang out at the museum at night and see what happens. Um, that is also starting back up. And there are some new exhibitions coming um, that we can't announce just yet, but make sure that you stay tuned to the ROMS website for some of those new pieces. Well, we have a few new programs that mm -hmm. we're introducing uh, in the spring as well. Mm -hmm. On climate change, the T-Rex... And I always forget the third one. Evolution. Evolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Evolution. As I said, I mean, quite a range. Simple, simple uh, topics. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, <laughs> big deal. no big deal. Nothing complicated. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled and excited for what comes next. I know a lot of our listeners are too. Folks, if you get a chance, if you're living here or visiting here in, in Toronto, do not miss the Royal Ontario Museum. They've got wonderful educators like uh, Julie and, and Leslie leading the way and, and integrating new forms of knowledge on what sounds like a near daily basis. Um, Leslie, Julie, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for, for sharing not just what's happening in the museum, but uh, your vision, your, 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 or your goals. Um, and and I'm, I'm absolutely positive that some of the young listeners out there are going to take inspiration and going back to the very beginning of this episode may find themselves on the winding, circuitous and uncertain path towards um, their own role in, in passing on this knowledge. Um, yeah. Any final words for, for maybe the young people listening at home who, who may be thinking about how they can get more involved in some of the things we've been discussing? 
There's some free days to come to the museum. Um, every once in a while, check the website. We also have tours on the weekends if you want to learn more with Indigenous educators. Um, the best place to find out what's happening and, and how to get involved is on the website. Yeah, but yes. miigwech. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Stay curious. Stay curious. I love it. It's been the Braemar Life Skills Academy podcast. Looking forward to more great episodes like this one to come. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, miigwech. Thanks. In next week's episode, I'm looking forward to stepping away and letting a few of the Braemar students and teachers talk to you about Black History Month and what it means to them.